Go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to spend a lot of time, uh, obviously, in chapters, or in Hebrews, uh, in chapters 8, 9, and 10 tonight. So we're going to cover a bunch of material uh, with some, uh, uh, some detours to Exodus and Jeremiah. Um, so uh, just to recap what we've talked about in previous weeks very quickly, um, we've been doing the study of the book of Hebrews for the last three weeks and kind of progressing through the book piece by piece. Um, and the recap is right there. There are two themes in this book. And we've, again, we've talked about this extensively, but I, I think it makes sense to restate every time we meet. The, the two core ideas that the uh, author of Hebrews wants to communicate to his, his audience who are Jews living somewhere uh, in the ancient world who have become Christians is no matter what, how much you loved uh, Judaism, no matter how much you loved the artifacts and uh, ideas and structure of Judaism, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything that is found in the Old Testament, everything that is in that old system of laws. Um, and then, and so in the, the passages we've read uh, up through chapter seven, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, up through chapter 7, we've got the, um, the author moving through each of the Old Testament institutions. And it starts with angels. He says, Jesus is better than angels. And he gives these, uh, a long explanation of why that's true. Well, the angels were told to worship him at the beginning of time. Uh, he, his work is more powerful than that of angels. The angels delivered the law, but he accomplishes it. Uh, he's better than Moses, who we know uh, from talking last week uh, to these Israelite or these Jews would have been kind of like a super Jew, right? They look back on him as the, uh, the first real prophet and the, the kind of uh, prophet par excellence, right? Uh, and then and the arguments there are, well, Moses was a servant, but a son is better than a servant. Jesus is the son. Uh, and then finally, we got into this long, argu- this long argument that the, the uh, author of Hebrews makes uh, about the priesthood, right? He says uh, the, the, the administrators and kind of leaders of the Old Testament covenant were the priests. The priests stood in front, of the, uh, in front of God and spoke on behalf of the people and received God's messages. Um, but Jesus is better than the priesthood. And the reason he's better than the priesthood is because he's not descended, his his right to be a priest does not descend from Aaron or Levi. It, he's in an, an order all his own. Uh, he's existed from, the, and his ministry exists from the beginning of time to its very end and beyond. Uh, so that, that's why he's a better kind of priest. And we're going to get into, there's a little bit more of that in the, the next few sections we're going to read. And then the, the conclusion's always the same, right? It's Jesus is better don't look back. Don't return to what you were. Don't, uh, don't abandon the faith uh, because of, of the persecution you're experiencing or how difficult it is. Understand that Jesus accomplishes everything in the Old Testament and fulfills everything there and is better than anything in the Old Testament. He's really going to round out that, or, or she, whoever wrote Hebrews, is going to round out that argument uh, in the passages that we read tonight. If you take nothing else away from this study, all six weeks of this study, and you don't, you don't understand anything else I've said, and you don't, uh, you don't get it, write, Jesus is better, and don't look back on the, on the top of, of, of Hebrews, because that's all he's saying the whole time. 
Uh, and if you know those two phrases in conjunction with Hebrews, anytime somebody is like, what do you think the, the book of Hebrews means? Or they want to know what a passage in it means, it probably means one of these two things. Um, and you will be ahead of 98% of Christians and 99.9999% of all people in the world in terms of understanding this book. I can't emphasize enough that this, really this is all he's talking about. Um, so we are going to read tonight, uh, uh, he's going to uh, develop his argument about the priesthood by talking about the tabernacle and the temple, uh, and then the duties of priests within, those, uh, within the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, so, all right, Richard, you want to step to the next slide? Thank you, sir. So Jesus is better than the tabernacle and the law. Uh, let's turn to chapter 8, verse 1. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. So he says, I'm going I'm to sum all this up for you, and, and uh, this is what I meant. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man, Jesus, have somewhat also to offer. So he says, we have the kind of high priest uh, who is, he's not earthly, he's heavenly, right? He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. And this is actually a reference to Psalm 110, which uh, the, the author has re referred to repeatedly. He's always going back to the Psalms. Uh, and he says, uh, he's a minister of, of the sanctuary, but it's, it's the real tabernacle. It's not, it's not pitched by men here on earth. It's a tabernacle that exists in heavenly spaces. Uh, he said, then he says, for every high, in verse 3, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. In some ways, that's the function of the priesthood, is to offer gifts and sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of the people as a thank offering, as a sin offering. There are all these offerings described in Leviticus and elsewhere. So that's a function of the priesthood. And he says, wherefore it is necessity. So it, Jesus must be able to offer sacrifices, he says. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So he says, if Jesus arrived and was like, hey, I want to go into the, the temple and offer uh, sacrifices on behalf of the people, the regular priesthood would be like, who are you, right? And, and you have to be a Levite. You have to be, you cannot go to, you know, Liberty University and become a priest or, or where, you know, the, the Jewish equivalent. You can't learn to be a priest. You're a priest if you're a Levite. That's it. So the Levites would have been like, why are you here? Um, five, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses, as Mo, Moses was admonished, I'm sorry, of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So catch this, right? And I, this is the first bullet of my outline, I think. Um, what he's saying is the, the priesthood and the places where the priesthood happens are shadows and copies of something that exists in a perfect form elsewhere, right? It's, it's meant to, to draw your attention not to what's happening in the building, it's the tent itself, but rather to what's happening in heaven, right? It, it's a shadow or a copy. That's a reassuring thought. Um, we are suffering right now, uh, I think, in this church, uh, 
not through unfaithfulness or anything else, but through a storm of bad news, right? And a, a season of unhappiness and, and death. And it, but this place is just a shadow and a copy of something that's real in heaven, right? One day we'll wake from the dream and, and, we'll, and we'll be in the presence of the master and all of this will fade away. That's reassuring to me. But in the context of Hebrews, what he's saying is all these things you love in the tabernacle, all the things that happen there are a shadow and a copy of what Jesus is. Let's continue. Uh, oh, and, and that, that reference, uh, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, if we go back to Exodus 25. Sorry, Richard. Exodus 25, um, 40, I think. So uh, Exodus 25 is a long, kind of kind of boring passage where um, it describes all of the the all the things that are in the tabernacle. It is it, it, like in painstaking detail. Uh, those of you who've read it uh, and have gotten through it, uh, congratulations. It's it's not great uh, in terms of of being like really fun content. Uh, but at the end. Uh, God says to Moses uh, in verse 40, And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. Right? And before this, in uh, chapters you know, 22, 23, 24, uh, Moses went up uh, on Mount Sinai and met with God a bunch of times. Like He went up two or three times in the cor- over the course of this uh, set of passages. Um, and you notice what's kind of cool there? God... God showed him what the heavenly tabernacle looks like. Right? He showed him an image of it, or he showed the actual thing to him. He's like, make something like this as well as you can. Uh, and then he gave him explicit instructions about what it was to look like. So it's, it's not the real thing. It's a copy of the real thing. But God was pretty explicit to Moses about, like, uh, check this out and make it as, as well as you can. Verse 6. But now hath he, Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant, so he's switching, right? He's moving from uh, the, the tabernacle, which represented, uh, which represented the, the place or the locus of all worship for Israel during that time period. Uh, and he's saying... Uh, all of that arose from the first covenant, right? From, from, uh, not from the Abrahamic covenant, but from the covenant with Moses, right? They, there's this idea um, that God made an agreement with the people of Israel that they would be his people and he would be their God. Uh, he would, and you know, there's a whole set of laws and, and obligations that are bound up with that. But the first covenant wasn't sufficient. Uh, and it wasn't sufficient because they failed, Uh, okay, so for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for us. You don't need a new covenant if the old one's working, right? For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. And this is also in Jeremiah, by the way, Jeremiah 30. Um, We're not going to go back and read that because it's, it's an exact quote. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old or obsolete Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So a couple thoughts here. Um, You notice kind of the structure of that quotation from from Jeremiah is, one, there's going to be a new covenant. Two, it's not going to be like the covenant at Sinai. Uh, The covenant will be placed in the hearts and minds of the people. um, So everyone in the covenant community will know God and God will forgive their sins. That's, That's the basis of it. And then the difference between the old and the new covenant, the new covenant is internal. Uh, and I, I don't want to pass over this too much because um, I think it's important. Um, the, the things you did to receive forgiveness under the old covenant were external, right? You, you, went, to the, um, you went to the tabernacle before they had the temple or you went to the temple um, and the priest would sacrifice on your behalf. You'd, you'd bring an offering and they'd, they'd sacrifice it. And that was the way that you obtained forgiveness for your sins. Um, and we'll talk about this in a moment. But that, that forgiveness was always incomplete uh, on, you know, based on the Old Testament, uh, like what the Old Testament says and what the author of Hebrews says here. Um, but... God had a desire always that his people would internalize that external ritual. Like, go and read Isaiah, the, not all of it today, it's a long book, but the theme of Isaiah is, I see what you're doing. Uh, I see what you're doing. I, I, I see the sacrifices that you give me. Um, I see your, your, the, the offerings, um, but the heart that drives it is wicked. Right, the, the heart that you don't mean it, uh, and I, it's important to me that you mean it. It's important that you can't uh, go out into the world and oppress the widow and the orphan, uh, be, be mean to each other. I mean, I don't know any, any other way to put it, but you, you can't uh, live any way you like and then offer up the offerings and, and have all the external indicia of, of being um, you know, a, a devout Jew, um, but, but not believe. Right, that, that's the problem, uh, the basic problem that, that God has with Israel in Isaiah, in Hosea, uh, in, in several other books of the Old Testament. He's like, gosh, you, you guys are doing it, but you, you don't seem to mean it all, at all. You, you don't get what I really want. Um, so this new covenant, right, it gets away with those external signs, right, because it, it's going to be inscribed, it is inscribed on our hearts, Right? Jeremiah predicted a time when the old covenant would be done away with and it would be inscribed on our hearts. The hearts of the covenant community would, would be changed by God. So that's the idea. Um, let's continue. 9-1. Then verily, 
the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. But there was a, for there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So picture the tabernacle. Um, there, I wish I had a picture. I could probably find one and put it here. I didn't, but um, it's picture a square um, or a, a rectangle, and there's a court, right? And that first house you enter into, and, and not anybody could go in there, but m- most of the children of Israel. Um, and that was where the, uh, the candles, there were candlesticks there and a table, showbread, and that was called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, that's where the ark is, right? Which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the, the tables of the covenant, or the Ten Commandments. And over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So he's giving a list of the things that are in the Holy of Holies. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. And into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So catch what he's saying here. He's saying the priests go in, right, and they offer, they offer offerings for the sins of the people. Once a year, the high priest goes in and he has to offer a blood sacrifice for his own sins, the sins of his people, and then he enters into the presence of, of God in the, holiest, in the Holy of Holies, or the holiest of all, that second chamber. Um, but remember, the whole system and the, the structure itself are only a shadow and a copy of what? Well, he's going to tell us. He says, um, so that first tent, right, the first tabernacle that he mentions in verse 8, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. And you say, what does that mean? It means that the sacrifices offered by the high priest and, and the priests during this time period, they are for, they're not for sin you commit willfully or sin that you commit knowing that it's sin. They are for sins you did not, you, that you did inadvertently. So things like, uh, gosh, I didn't do this ritual washing. I came into the ta- I, I came into the tabernacle and I wasn't clean, uh, or I ate the wrong thing. Uh, I had a slice of cheese on my hamburger. I didn't keep kosher. That's silly, but that's the kind of inadvertent thing that you might do uh, that would cause a ritual impurity or a problem. Uh, the sacrifices that the priests offered at this time—that's that, that's the kind of stuff they were addressed at. Not the big, heart-rending things that, that separate us from God. Let's continue. But Christ, being come and a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and of goats, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, 
sanctifieth to the puring, sanctifieth to the purity, uh, purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So again, catch what He's saying here. Right? We we talked last week. Right? The 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 author stepped through the idea of. Um, the, the priest, right, when he goes in, he has to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. And then he offers a sacrifice for yours because he can't, he can't mediate with God without first absolving himself of his own sin. Um, Christ doesn't have that problem, right? Also, the priest is going to die one day. So you find a priest and you, you work with him. One day that priest is going to die. He can't continually offer sacrifices for your sins in front of the Father, because one day he, he, he's not going to be here. Christ, uh, again, if only there were a priest, if only, if only there were a priest who was in the presence of the Father in the heavenly sanctuary, who had committed no sin and who never died. And if only he could offer a blood sacrifice that wasn't just the blood of bulls and rams, but something meaningful. It's, it's not hard to figure, right? The, the, this is the argument that he's making. All these things are, are shadows and copies that cast forward into who Christ is and what he did and what he's doing right at this moment. Let's continue. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, so wherever a covenant is or a, a contract, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament uh, was dedicated without blood. Right, so he's saying a covenant has to be sealed with blood, the blood of something. And we could go all the way back to Abraham. Uh, and we're going to go back to Moses in a minute, but if you go back to Abraham, uh, anybody remember the scene where it's really weird? Like Abraham has this conversation with God. God says, "You know, I'm going to uh, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Your descendants will be more than the stars." What do they do? Anybody remember this? Cut the animals in half. Yeah, yeah. They they grab these animals, right? These bulls, uh, and they they chop them up and put them in a fire, and then. Abraham and God walk in the middle of the fire. Uh, and it's like, what does, what? Uh, right? Um, and that, that's the way that actually the, the Hebrew words for to make a covenant are to cut a covenant. Uh, why did they do that? Well, you're not likely to forget it, are you? Right? It's, it, like, you're, you're not, it's not something you do every day. Um, the same is true like in, in our U.S. law. Um, if you wanted to pass property to somebody else, uh, say 150 years ago, uh, you would stand in the middle of the field where the property was, and you would hand the person a clod of dirt in front of. It's called livery of season in front of uh, like eight witnesses, and then they would all sign. Why'd you do that? Well, nobody's going to forget that time John handed Tony a clod of dirt, uh, right? It's just it's because it's not something that you do every day. Um, and it was meaningful, right? It, it required the sacrifice of a thing. It, was, it, it blessed the interaction with blood. Um, and so from the, 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 the author of Hebrews is here saying um, that first testament, uh, 
Uh, he, that first testament was dedicated with blood, but it was imperfect. So verse 19, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book, so the, the tablets with the covenant, and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Now there, there is an event in verse 24, or um, verse 24, Exodus 24, which is before the tabernacle is built, where Moses does this very thing. Uh, he gathers a bunch of blood into two bowls, and he, he sprinkles it on the people, uh, which is not hygienic, but you know, nothing was back then. And he's like, he sprinkles it on the people, and, and that seals the covenant for them. It's, it's, we don't have an event in the Old Testament where he does that in the tabernacle, but... Uh, so maybe the author is just kind of stretching, or maybe he's relying on some oral tradition. But in any event, uh, he describes this event, and he says uh, in verse 20, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, right? If you want a greater degree of freedom and a greater degree of forgiveness, right, the, the sacrifice has to be amplified. It has to be, ra- it has to be ramped up. It says, it was therefore necessary, oh, I'm sorry, verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. Right. So the high priest goes in every year, offers sacrifices for the sins of the people. He has to do it every year. Right. He doesn't do it once. He does it every every year. It's an annual ritual. And the point here is, right? Jesus doesn't have. He doesn't have to do that. Verse 26, for then, oh, um, yeah. for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Right? He doesn't go into the heavenly sanctuary with the blood of bulls and goats. Uh, he went into the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood and sacrificed himself on our behalf. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Um, so the, the covenant uh, and the, the kind of external indicia of the covenant that we find in the Old Testament are a mirror or copy of what Jesus did for real, Right? He, he offered a perfect sacrifice that doesn't just get rid of ritual sin, but actual sin. Uh, it, it hard, it, the, everything in the Old Testament points to him in that way. Let's go to verse, or chapter 10. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered, year by year, continually make the, 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 um, the comers thereunto perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? Right? If, if the sacrifices worked, the Old Testament sacrifices worked, why didn't they just do it once? Right? 
because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, so Jesus, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. All that's from the Psalms. Um, the, as I said, the Psalms, are, the Psalms are the favorite book of the uh, author of Hebrews. Above when he said, and he's, so he, he's casting the words of the psalmist as the words of Jesus, right? The, the psalmist says, you, you, God, you don't regard our sacrifices as, uh, the, the, the psalmist is recognizing what God is saying in Isaiah. Yeah, I, I, I get it, God, that you don't, uh, there's a passage in Isaiah where God says, do, do you think I'm hungry? I'm not. Like, I don't, I don't eat your, the sacrifices that you give to me. The point is that you are sacrificing. Um, and so that's, that's what the, the, author, the psalmist that's being quoted here is saying. Uh, verse 9, then said he, oh, verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Again, that's a a quotation of the Psalms. For by one authoring, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that, he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after that. This is again a quote from Jeremiah. That I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Nor where remission of these is, now where remission of these is, there is no offering, no more offering for sin. We don't have to do that. Christ did it once for all. Um, okay, um, and I will not. Um, I'll go ahead and read 19 to 25. Uh, so, right, the, he, he's concluded his argument about why Jesus is better than the Old Testament. He says, and, and now he's going to exhort them and tell them, be encouraged based on that. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke uh, unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. And we're going to, we'll talk about the uh, we're going to skip a big chunk here uh, going into next week. Uh, on the last week, I'm going to talk about the warning passages, which sometimes, if read uh, a certain way, seem to say that you can lose your salvation. And I, those are very complicated. And I want to make sure we spend some time on them. One thing I do want to say, I uh, don't want you to think that the author of Hebrews, or I, am denigrating the Old Covenant. Uh, 
because the old covenant is, is you can't have the new covenant without having the old covenant. Uh, and it's hard to express how superior the old covenant is to what anybody else had in the ancient world. Uh, there's, there, are some, some, uh, there is some poetry, uh, Assyrian poetry, uh, that I was going to bring and I didn't. Uh, I'll bring it next week. But uh, it's preserved for us by archaeologists. And it says, it's a, uh, I wish I could remember it by heart, but I can't. It's a, um, a prayer to an unknown God. Uh, and the, um, the poet is saying, my life is not going the way that I want, and I'm very sad um, all the time, and I don't know what God I've offended, and I don't know how I've offended him and I, or her, and I don't know what to do. Uh, and it is, it is heartbreaking, right? It, it reaches across 3,000 years of time and breaks your heart when you read it, because here's a person who wants to know what the gods want him to do or her, uh, and they, they just they can't figure it out. The Israelites didn't have that problem. They didn't, they didn't want to do what God told them to do, but he, he wasn't unclear, right? Um, and that would have been an enormous comfort, right? But remember, the Psalms say that David danced. He delighted in the law of the Lord. When was the last time you delighted in the law of the United States? Right? Never. Right? You, get traffic, you get a traffic ticket, you're not happy about it. But God made it very clear and that was, that was special and unique in the ancient world, the idea that you would worship a God who would, who would have clearly articulated what he wants and what he doesn't, and what he finds honorable and what he doesn't, and how you can be a good person and how, how maybe you shouldn't be. Um, so I don't want to denigrate at all the Old Testament or, or Old Testament Judaism or Second Temple Judaism. All these people were Second Temple Jews. Um, because it's important. It, it, it's important that we understand the Jewish background of our Bible, and it's important that we um, honor them or honor that covenant, uh, understand what it was, uh, because it forms the basis of what we have.